On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, we're going on African safari with my friend, butchering mentor, and African hunting enthusiast, Mr. Larry Hassel. With deep roots of Texas deer hunting, he ultimately scratched the itch of curiosity as a younger man and began hunting in Africa, of which Larry is no stranger to many of its different countries and exotic species. This self-made salesman from the 1980s computer era boom provides enticing perspectives of the modern African safari. So listen up and get ready for a couple of exciting adventures from the dark continent with one of the nicest guys I know, Larry Hassel. You got a stunning view of the Bridger Mountains here. Yeah. It doesn't look like December, I'll say that. No, it does not. It certainly doesn't look like last December. No, like night and day difference. Yeah. I think we've actually got a little light snow coming in forecast for Saturday. Yeah, I've been watching that. And uh, the only blip on our extended forecast. Yeah, like the really, last month. It is. Yeah, and and still, temperatures are still going to remain pretty moderate. But uh, at this time of year, as short as the days are, um, I think we're going to probably have white on the ground for an extended period of time. Yeah, it feels like early spring or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We need some snow. It's, some beautiful, hunting, it's beautiful weather, though. I mean, it's it's matters what you're looking for, Larry. Well, that's true. You know, I mean, I'm thinking about it. I there's a couple of hunting opportunities that may eclipse me altogether this season. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I had a couple of, or the wife and I had mule deer doe tags, and we normally, you know, go out there and see Mr. Otis and, and yeah. shoot a couple of does, and you know, it's just meat. But uh, you know. It's easy meat to put in the freezer, and and uh, and it's just a quick trip out there. And he called me two, three weeks into the season. He said, "Man, I'm I'm terribly sorry, but I don't have a single doe on my pasture." Is that right? Yeah. Man, mule deer across Montana are changing. I swear, spots that I've been hunting for the last decade are drying up, and there are other spots that are. I, I was quick to write off the whole state and was like, the state of the mule deer in Montana is down the tubes right now. But in the last six months, I've rediscovered mule deer in places that I don't hunt them or haven't yet. <laughs> but uh, I've not given up entirely. Yeah, I think that I, I have no doubt from conversations I've had with several people that the the past winter was pretty brutal yeah uh i think we had a significant winter kill probably more so than is normal um i don't think though from all indications it was nearly as as bad as it was in most of wyoming and large portions of nevada and yeah those are the ones that you hear that that made the national news well i mean there were places there's places in Wyoming, I think, was well over 80%. That's I rough. mean, deer and antelope, and I think elk fared much better because, you know, elk are, uh, you know, they're just physically so much bigger that they can contend with a lot more snow. Yeah, just by pure biomass. Yeah, yeah. They're you a know, little bit tougher. An elk or a bison, they can get down through several feet of it if they have to, and I think they had to. Yeah. You know. I just reread uh, Ranella's american buffalo uh-huh i actually just finished it this morning um but yeah i'm looking at your bull bison here so 
let me paint the picture of where we're sitting right now. I'll call this your great room. Would you call this your, yes, your yes. living room? Sure, sure. Beautiful high ceiling uh, main room, one end of which is completely glass and looks out to the full Bridger range. So we're north Bozeman, and I can see an unobstructed view of the Bridger Mountains from like the north tip to the south tip. And I've climbed almost every one of those peaks. I wish I could say that. <laughs> you know what the hardest one is? Is the smallest of the top five peaks over there. From well, Hard, Hard Scrabble, Pomp, Sacagawea, Nainuki, and Ross. Ross is the shortest, and Ross is the hardest to climb. Well, yeah, Ross looks quite steep here, and and from this perspective, quite rocky. That there's no trail on that one. Yeah, that's just a free climb up towards the top. Yeah, we've actually. Uh, when we when we laid out the uh, orientation of the house, we we had a certain building envelope, if you will, and a, a kind of a center point on the lot, and uh, had had to encompass that. But my builder said, you know, how do you want to turn this house? We have we can orient it quite a bit, you know, quite a quite a range. And my wife says, "What's that mountain there?" And I, he said, "Ross Peak." And he, I, she said, "I want to walk in the house and be able to look, just be right there facing Ross nice, Peak." Nice, smart lady. You know, so uh, the how we kind of spun the house that direction. Yeah, it's uh, it's probably the most dramatic looking peak of all the Bridger peaks there. With the pass just to the south of it, it makes it look taller than it mm -hmm. is. And as you said, it's all rock and cliff at the top. But it's the it's the fifth highest in the range. It's not. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the hardest to climb, in my opinion. Yeah. But more importantly, inside this great room is a uh, mosaic of taxidermy, which I just love. You have beautiful taxidermy throughout your home. It's... Uh, it's probably the nicest, the classiest, yet excessive display of taxidermy <laughs> that I have that well, I have seen myself. We, we kind of uh, uh, it's hi Sharon. It's you know early wildlife, I guess. You know, I mean, it's uh, I didn't want to get too carried away in our in our previous home, which was markedly smaller. Um, you could hardly walk into the house because of all the noses. I mean, it, that's about the life I'm living you right know, now. Uh, and I didn't want to clutter the house nearly that much. Um, so I hope, you know, I tried to do it as tastefully as possible. It's incredible. Any, anybody uh, from any level of appreciation for taxidermy work or well-done interior design that incorporates nice taxidermy uh, would walk into this house and give it a 10 out of 10. It's well, thank you. gorgeous. Yeah. But... Before this house, let's back up and tell a little bit of your backstory. You are from, just guessing by your accent, Texas? <laughs> <laughs> accent? Do I have an accent? Yes, uh, I spent my first 66 years down there in the oven. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, at retirement, I was able to escape. Born and raised Texas? Yes, yes. Austin, right? Well, I lived in Austin, which is now, of course, known better as the People's Republic of Austin. <laughs> Uh, I lived in Austin about 42 years, and so wow. the you know the majority of my working career, or a large portion of my working career, but 
uh, you know, grew up not too far from there, you know, about 100 miles north or whatever. Grew up in a hunting and fishing family? No. You didn't? Not at all. I mean, my father did a little bird hunting and such, but uh, no, no, I didn't really have any background of, of, you know, certainly no big game hunting. So what was your introduction into big game hunting? At what age and what were you doing? Well, I I don't know. I just, you know, I think certain people just have a, a different drives. So sometimes it's it comes from, uh, you know, from, from family, of course. But I think other times it's just innate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never had... You know, I, I didn't really have anybody to introduce it to me. I mean, it, you know, and, and, and of course, being a Texan, even even that many years ago, uh, it was difficult to touch land. Is that right? Because the entire state of Texas is privately owned. I mean, I say the entire. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but not much. It's uh, Texas is uh, considered about 97% private. And Man. hunting has become... Uh, a very, very big business there, and because of that, um, it it severely limits access to land. You can even have a, uh, um, a you know, a close friend or a relative or whatever with property that you might want to hunt, and you're not going to touch it. Yeah, good luck. Good luck, you know, because it's revenue to them, and, and they're looking at the profit potential, and, you know, it would be as, about as likely as them giving you their checkbook you know? what's interesting to me is how that the social economics of that culture in texas and that hunting element being such a big part of it has uh translated over and fueled a lot of at least south african hunting yeah like texas literally went over to south africa and just said we're going to do our texas thing here. I feel like it's really fueled South African well, in a South, way that South Africa or Southern Africa, I think more accurately, because not only the Republic of South Africa, which of course is a very large country, huh. uh, but also Namibia and also Mozambique and and uh, uh, you know Zimbabwe to some extent and and uh, uh, some of those other you know Botswana, some of the surrounding countries, Zambia. Uh, they were not big, big hunting countries, sporting hunt, hunting countries until fairly recent years. Right. Uh, the the industry, the big hunting industry, if you'll recall, uh, like, you know, what Teddy Roosevelt wrote about, and, you know, when he did his big safari back, what was it, 06, something like that. 1906. Uh, you know, it was it was – primarily Kenya and what was then Tanganyika, which, of course, is now Tanzania. Oh, God. Uh, you know, so Kenya was British East Africa, and uh, Tanganyika was German East Africa. Huh. And uh, so that was really where the industry started, where these professional Ameri- hunters. Ameri- okay, yeah. Well, let's back up from the professional hunters and everything from that. Let's start with how you kind of got there, which is a life in Texas. Uh, but you ultimately uh, made the jump to go hunt Africa like a lot of people do. A lot of Texans do, and a lot of people, Americans, ultimately make that move to shift. And it seems like you got bit by the bug. I'm surrounded by 
several different African species in here. So I want to go through some of your adventures and stuff. But back in Texas, before you were going on safari in Alaska, you had a background in uh, what? What was your your career? You retired from? Well, I was in, done a, like a lot of people, or most people, I think. I was involved in a number of different industries at one time or another. But I spent about forty years in the last forty years or so of my working career uh, in international freight forwarding, primarily just moving freight from one end of the world to the other. And primarily, uh, are you? You've told me a story before where you met a young man who was starting a, a small tech company <laughs> and uh, kind of built careers side by side with this man. Well, I didn't do quite as well as he. And, uh, uh, what but, was his name? But, uh, but yeah, I was making a sales call in Austin, uh, as I recall, 1985, and I was introduced, uh, and uh, there were only two people at the place, at the uh, business uh, at that minute, but... Uh, uh, I was at the end of my sales call. My contact asked me if I'd like to to see the warehouse. And of course, being a typical salesman, I wanted all the exposure possible. And, <laughs> and so you, you bet I've got time. And and uh, we walked through this door, and there were boxes stacked to the ceiling. The whole place was was quite small, just a business strip. It might have been 2,000 square feet. And there was a a single overhead door, and there's a tall, curly-haired kid, jeans, sweatshirt. And uh, as we walked by, my contact said, oh, Larry, I'd like you to meet our president. This is Michael Dale. And I shook the little boy's hand. <laughs> He's done quite well for himself since then. And the company was obviously Dell Computer. It was No, it was at that time it was PCs Limited. So oh, okay. it had not taken up the name Dell. But, uh, man, I, I couldn't tell you when it was. Well, I'm sure it was soon thereafter uh, or it, perhaps it was just so this it was is the called dawn. Dell computer I think is whether that was technically what was on the uh, 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 at you know registered at the Secretary of State's office or not but uh, I got you everybody called him Dell computer and then it was just Dell uh, so, and this yeah. is the dawn of the com you know computers going mainstream well, you know 1985 frankly I wasn't altogether sure what a PC was yeah I guess know. that's before I was even alive man that's wild. You know, I mean, there were there were certainly uh, people that were a lot more uh, tech oriented than I might have been. That uh, and so this guy is starting this computer parts company and needs to manufacture overseas and bring stuff to the states, and that's where you come in. Well, we did a lot of business with Dale and a lot of other entrepreneurs too. But, but that was your uh, that was your role was transport ex expediting products shipping. well you know um the freight forwarding industry is basically moves most of the goods in the world and freight forwarders by definition don't own conveyance sometimes there's exceptions to that but uh for the most part there's the world's steamship lines and then the world's airlines and um, they utilize the freight forwarders to to sell their carriage their product so you won't have you don't uh, except for very very large customers you know uh, airlines are not going to call on you or or uh, even steamship lines but uh, uh, you know the freight forwarders who are buying their carriage in a wholesale fashion and then reselling it oh so you you were selling it on the end 
to the end consumer in the states or, or retailers over here? Yeah, well, basically the way the system works is uh, there's all these carriers and they're moving a vessel from point A to point B and back to point A, et cetera, and same thing with the airlines. And the, in case of the airlines, most often they're also hauling a lot of passengers and they have belly space, you know, they have additional space in that aircraft and so they want to realize all the revenue they can uh, achieve. And so they will sell that space on a contract basis to freight forwarders and then the freight forwarders go out and find people who need to either, you know, ship product to wherever in the world or bring in components uh, or products, you know, that they want to retail uh, from various parts. Sure, okay. So the companies that I worked for would have contracts with the American Airlines and the Deltas and the Lufthansa's and, uh, you know, all the various airlines in the world and also all the major shipping, you know, uh, steamship lines, you know, people like, uh, uh, you know, um, Maersk or, or China shipping or, you know, whatever. There's a long laundry list of them. So you would, you would be the, uh, the guy that could fill the space in you know, different and, moving and, parts and, around the world. And we, we, we hung the bells and whistles on the basic product. So, you know, you, we, we, would pri- we would sell pre-carriage, which means you're picking up uh, goods and bringing them to that carrier. Uh, we would provide on carriage, which means that uh, let's say that something comes in on uh, Evergreen and uh, hits the, you know, Long Beach. It's got to get to Texas and, uh, well, Evergreen would would put it on another carrier, uh, probably like somebody like Burlington Northern, Santa Fe, mm-hmm. you know, the, the railroad. And then we would collect it from the railroad, say, in Houston or, or in Dallas. And uh, then we would uh, arrange the carriage down to Austin, make the delivery. But we'd also sell them customs clearance. We would sell them cargo insurance. Um just whatever you know yeah it's like buying an automobile you know you're buying you want they want to sell you every little nitpicky thing they can they want <laughs> they want to sell you the 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 um, uh, financing and they want to sell you undercoating and they want to uh, sell you the floor mats and anything else they can add to that yeah. to, to realize some profit so yes that's that's what i did is i would go out and talk to uh, uh industry i'd call on various industries and and um, and then find out exactly what their needs were and help them discover ways that they could help me make a living. Yeah. So after a, a lifetime of that, you you made it to Montana. I escaped. I escaped. So we got to a certain point and realized we were we were getting close to uh, retirement. And so in 2012, summer 2012, my young bride and I. Uh, loaded up and came north and basically what we were considering is we had been a number of places on vacation you know and it was often hunting and fishing and things of that nature and too often uh, it was rush 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 you know you don't have a moment to 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 tarry but uh, suddenly we were able to look at it and think about okay these places that we always uh regretted not being able to spend more time at where would we 
which one of these places would we choose to live out the rest of our life? Call home, yeah. Yeah, what would be what would be the home we would envision? And of course, your needs your needs change throughout your lifetime. But as a retirement couple, uh, we found this Bozeman area to be an attractive option, uh, a good balance of being near the uh, uh, the outdoors and the wildlife and that sort of lifestyle that we. Uh, always enjoyed and also you know offering us a, a reasonable infrastructure of you know you don't you know when you're when you're uh, 70 you don't want to and I wish I were still 70 but if you were <laughs> if you were 70 you know you don't want to spend uh, an hour driving to the store to get a loaf of bread so I hear that you know uh, some of the places that we might have considered when we we're 35 or 40 weren't nearly as attractive at 70 or, or at that time I guess I was about 65 but uh, but you know uh, this this particular area was very attractive to us it, yeah, it just it brought it, me it here was too, a good man. balance I got here just a couple of years before you, yeah, and I came for the exact same reasons. I was exactly. like, I go to college and keep my parents happy, and there's elk 25 minutes from campus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and very often, uh, I was looking today, very often I can stand here in my great room and see elk there on the on the foothills of the Bridgers. And, no, I have no doubt. You know. So what introduced you to uh, – hunting in Africa or Safari Club International or what was what was kind of your uh, your evolution into that world well you know as as anybody that's working a so-called nine to five and I wish it were that many uh, that few hours but you know the the routine of having to get up you know every day and going to work you just don't have a lot of time off so we spent a lot of time. We did hunt a lot in Texas in our in our earlier years and deer hunting, mostly mostly whitetail. Yeah. I did shoot a few mule deer and and uh, out in a far you know Trans Pecos area whatever, but uh, mostly whitetail and and um, it just got increasingly difficult to access and increasingly more expensive and. As I tell people, after your first couple of hundred deer, couple of hundred whitetail, you know, you kind of think about, well, what else can I do here? We, we, we used to spend a lot of time, we, you know, if we got a week off, we would always leave the state immediately. Uh, and what's the closest place to get to? Well, Louisiana. you know, Colorado and New Mexico were very, you know, but there's nothing close. Once you get out of Texas, you're you're almost there. <laughs> uh, so. Wyoming wasn't that far. Okay. Uh, we spent a lot of, you know, we, I did run up in Montana a couple of, uh, you know, several trips, but, uh, and had hunted here and fished here, of course, uh, but spent a lot of time in Wyoming, a uh, certain amount of time in Colorado, and, you know, and made trips to Colorado hunting and New Mexico hunting and, and uh, you know, Oklahoma and just whatever, but just getting out of texas you know getting away from the uh was the, always the an interest to you yeah yeah we we loved you know wyoming i think the most exciting thing in wyoming and i'm still fanatic about it is pronghorn yeah you are crazy about you know pronghorn. just crazy about it we've you know wife and i've done a lot of that and there's a couple of big ones in here and uh well those are 
fair, I guess. But I've got a, I got a, I got a couple of big ones in the in the basement. But uh, yeah, no, we we love that. I I just love that open country and and you know apart from how many people might uh, pursue them, I like to get out and take my time and sort through them and actually hunt them yeah. and um you know and I, I'm, I have no interest i remember one time we i think it was it was like uh, oh gosh i want to say 1981 we were hunting south of rock springs wyoming and and uh wife i'd been walking in that sagebrush forever and one afternoon and got back to a little track and about that time, somebody came driving by in a pickup, and he he stopped and talked. He, well, where's your truck? And I said, well, it's you know it's back over here. And he says, well, what are you doing? He said, well, we're pronghorn hunting, and you know, or antelope. <laughs> Couldn't believe you had left the truck. He thought I was crazy. He said, yeah. well, if I can't shoot him from the truck, I'm not shooting him. I that's said, that's it's not where, it's not what we're after, you know. Well, there's a lot of uh, parallels to probably that and hunting in Africa. Like uh, on foot in a more open environment. Well, you know, being Afri- on safari. Africa it's. can be, you know, not unlike you know big game hunting in the states, but probably it, because you have, you know, you necessarily are hunting with a professional hunter, and and of course he has wherewithal um, staff and such. That experience can very tremendously it can be a very wild experience yes or they they could accommodate somebody who was handicapped you know this year uh, this this season that just finished here in montana uh i helped a friend of mine get a a whitetail nice little whitetail buck and uh this gentleman uh just a few days after the season ended uh, celebrated his 97th birthday nice and uh he he can't walk he he literally can just barely scoot on a walker but he's got a permit to shoot from a vehicle you know because he's permanently disabled sure and uh that's not as quite as easy as you might think because you got to get them into position and, and of course they're not nearly as quick and agile at that age but uh but we got it done and the reason I bring that up is a person could be, you know, young and, and strong and, and able to do whatever uh, and go to Africa and have a grand time and probably have some adventures that, you know, a person that may be middle age who is more likely to be the person going to Africa because sometimes it, uh, although it is quite a bargain, it's still sometimes you need to have some means uh uh, that might not come until uh, you got a few more years of, of your career by, but uh, you know th- they can accommodate whatever. I mean, and yeah, there's definitely like a, a diverse uh, spread of offerings in Africa. Um, you can have everything from damn near the four seasons, where it's like a full blown resort experience. I yes. feel like and go out plains game hunting, uh, and it's very vacationy and resort like and then there's all the way to like wild wild africa where you're out for a month in some wall tent hunting uh you know a pack of lions that's moving around several hundred mile square area or something of the wild likes of back in the original safari there's certain species that you're going to have to earn uh there are 
for instance, elephant, uh, not only is elephant generally relatively expensive, but it's uh, off. It's it generally is a a major physical effort. A lot of uh, miles. A lot of miles. You might walk ten or fifteen miles a day, in the actual ten or fifteen miles, and and uh, or maybe more. And uh, and you know, rough conditions. You know, you've got to earn those animals. And and you know, if you're hunting. Oh, let's say Bongo in West Africa, you know, and it's perhaps the only true jungle right. in, in the, on the continent. Is that Cameroon? Uh, uh, well, Cameroon or, or, or uh, uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to think, uh, several countries over in that, in that area. But up there on, in, uh, in West Africa, they, you know, those hunts are difficult. They're physically demanding. Sure. You know, same thing with Lord Derby Elan. Sure. Uh, you're going now, Lord Derby, you're so close to the equator, even though you might be hunting them in February or March, it's going to be bloody hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it just, it's always bloody hot there. What was your first trip over there? Well, the first trip we took was uh, 2005. And so I was in my mid-50s, I mean, you know, and uh, just looking for something that, uh, I guess, fulfilling a dream, you know, would read a lot of the books and such and um, get you think, well, perhaps I can do this. And, uh, and I'd read an article that uh, Diana Rupp had written for Sports Field Magazine. She and her husband... Uh, went to uh, Namibia and uh, hunted a property and, and, you know, and they wrote, he wrote in uh, Peterson's Hunting and she wrote for Sports Afield about this trip and there was quite a bit of material. And uh, so we wound up going to the very same property and uh, in 2005 in Namibia, kind of north central Namibia, and wonderful grand experience and you know it's the one of the reasons i did it i've never been terribly you know terribly adventurous you know and like everybody else you know africa oh my goodness that's so far away and what language do they speak and am i going to be able to do this can i do it you know whatever well is it safe yeah is it safe you know you start worrying about all of these things if you don't have a lot of experience uh and so we we took this um, uh, took this trip with a, with the I guess if you would say assurance of things that we had read about and then they said you know this really this is really something that Af- real people can do or normal people can do <laughs> okay and it just it was it it was a, a little comforting to 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 know a little bit more and and it turned out that that uh that was a great you know um, uh, a, a great experience wonderful experience what uh, did you hunt oh gosh we hunted well it was basically plains game uh and you know if you haven't been and that's a great place to start i have heard of people going out and saying okay i want to go hunt buff uh you know cape buffalo region. You know. is namibia a wild places uh open country or is it like south africa where the ranches are high fenced often both. or are they both both, both. maybe it has got, both you got you some got, countries are like a hundred percent 
like South Africa seems like a hundred percent fenced properties almost. And then other countries are completely wild hunts. Yeah. Well, South Africa is, you know, has a pretty heavy population and, and they're, you know, and so I think it is more ranches and things of that nature. And of course that can vary quite a bit. Uh, Namibia is about 20% bigger than Texas in land mass. Um, uh, population even today is probably only about two million most of which are in a couple of cities Uh, so they have a a lot of very remote country i'd uh, say but there are a lot of high fence operations but you think about high fence you discover that if you're hunting on a property like the property we went to originally and it was at that time was the largest single private land holding in Namibia I think it was 165,000 acres and you high fence 165,000 acres um, you don't necessarily ever see the fence oh no you have full ecosystems within that yeah that's you know, a- well I mean never there was actually a mountain range that ran right down through the middle of this thing and and you there's know, like two different styles of high fence to me there's the one where it's like a hundred acres in texas and you have 14 species on it that's kind of hunting in a pen and yeah. i don't really call it hunting too much i mean it's right it's perhaps has its place where they're like it's like the zoo the zoo approach yeah and then there are other places where like no we just we have high fences to protect uh the animals that live here and maybe it's not highly uh manipulated by you know introducing crazy species or genetics and like you know you see people growing 500 inch whitetail and it's like where what is this (laughs) or you see uh someone in a tree stand in texas and a zebra walks by i'm just like where where's the you got two different end goals well you know and and even if texas i mean they're texas is uh it varies tremendously sharon and i when we were when we were just in our 20s and early 30s were hunting a lot in far southwest texas down close to the mexican border down uh, on the edge of the chihuahuan desert and we would hunt ranches sometimes that were 20 or 30,000 acres yeah that's wild stuff and that was really wild stuff you know and you would get out and i mean we didn't hunt out of blinds we didn't see any feeders we didn't you know it was hunting yeah it was it was it was uh it was get out and literally walk 10 or 12 miles a day and and climb in and out of the canyons and whatever and that was a tremendous experience but you know there's other parts of the state where the the terrain is different the the number of game is you know the density of the game is much higher and yeah there's so many there's so many parallels between africa and texas to me and i think that's why so many texans hunt a lot in africa well i think one reason texans hunt a lot in africa is it's a lot more economical to hunt in africa than it is texas in in a general term you know yeah i mean it's i know people who are spending well over twenty thousand dollars a year for their right to cross somebody's fence wow you know just I a, mean, in texas in texas just a trespass fee just a trespass fee and 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 then they build blinds and bring in feeders yeah. and spend thousands of dollars per hunter 
to attract game and such. And so it becomes an extremely expensive enterprise. Yeah, uh, it's, you know, and, it's and wild. You know, the alternative to that is some of those ranches are they're heavily managed to the point, and I kind of joke about this, I don't know. I mean, I was talking to a friend the other day saying that the, the typical management hunt, if you will, and this is a, you know, so-called call bucks, you know. Oh, I'm familiar with a call know, buck. Okay, and, and you know, they it may be, or oh, it may be a 130, 140-inch buck, but just doesn't have the confirmation that they're looking for or whatever, you know. But uh, a three-day hunt, $3,000. That's just, you know, a little bit on the pricey side to shoot a dang whitetail. Yeah. Uh, whereas you can go to Africa and, gosh, if you really know the game, uh, and I've, I've, I've had to help friends go, and, uh, you know, of course, I didn't know all of this when I started either, but uh, you can, you know, you could go out and spend five or $6,000 and just have a grand time and shoot. Hunting for a week. Oh, hunting for a week, 10 days, 12 days, or whatever. Yeah, seeing different stuff. Um, So that first hunt was a Plains game hunt in Namibia? First gun was plain. Uh, first hunt was uh, plains game, and you know we we shot, uh, you know the, the wildebeest and the kudu and the, and springbok and yeah and uh, you know warthogs and things of that nature. It it was interesting because we it's a long story. We wound up we had a twelve day hunt, and um, we were actually in country for twelve days of hunting, and. After we'd been there for a full nine days and had shot a lot of different game, <laughs> uh, I was given the opportunity that the gentleman that ran the operation came to me and he said, you know, we we had a leopard hunter here and we normally... This story re- is from the first trip? This is from the first trip, I, yeah. No, I, yeah. This is this is one of my favorite, so, uh, this is one of my favorite uh, Africa stories you tell, but I didn't know it was on the first safari. So I was, I was given an opportunity to hunt a uh, leopard and... and and you know, leopards are not cheap. None of the dangerous game is cheap, and leopard is not the cheapest of the dangerous game uh, by any means. I mean, did the, you go to a different place for this? No, 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 same property. Okay, so this is where high fence gets interesting, because you can high fence and manage ungulates, but the leopards. There's no breeding program for leopards. No, no uh, there's. No. The leopard certainly could climb your ten foot fence and leave. Oh yeah, no. I suppose lions too, although they do breed lions. Well, again, this property was one hundred and sixty five thousand acres. I, I just I'm saying they they farm a lot of wild animals in the hunting industry in mm-hmm. Texas, and there's a couple that you can't that don't like you can't. Yeah. There's no great white in an aquarium anywhere in the world. Exactly. It doesn't work. Exactly. You can't uh, pen raise leopards and turn them loose in a high fence no, facility. No, no, no. So these are wild ass cats. Very much so. That just happen to hunt and live where they're these just jobs. part of the ecosystem. Yep. Absolutely, and and integral part. I think you know it's very important that they're there, and and also uh, there were cheetah, you know, there. Really. And uh, you know, I actually I can't imagine cheetah getting through the fence, but maybe. Well. You know, fences, it's just like in Texas, there's there's 
black buck and axe deer in the in the suburbs of Austin, or actually in the city <laughs> limits of Austin, for that matter. And they're certainly not behind high fence; they're in people's yards, uh, eating up their shrubbery. Right. But uh, you know, they escape high fence in a lot of ways. And there's there's a world. I've seen scimitar horned oryx. I've seen all dad. I've seen you know uh, wildebeest running wild behind low fence in various places of central Texas. There. Fences. All of those originally came from an intentional exotic yeah, decision yeah. Sure. by a human. The, sure. The leopard don't. Yeah. 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 That and that Texas Hill Country has become an absolute zoo. Yeah. I mean I it's, think it's crazy. Cool. <laughs> I think it's kinda cool. Yeah. It's an absolute zoo. It's 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 insane. What what you might you know, and it, it helps to be able to see stuff, you know, as a hunter. Yeah. We, you and I will see things that other people might not, and I thought I was really good at it. And I once had a Namibian spend a week with me here uh, in Bozeman, um, in between you know SCI shows or SCI uh, uh, expos, whatever. And I took him down to Yellowstone, and <laughs> although we couldn't get into Yellowstone because it was dead winter, but we drove to the gate. And uh, along the way, he was spotting pronghorn two miles off the road and, yeah. and, and deer bedded down a, year, a mile and a half off. And, I mean, the gentleman had eyes, so he's he's a far better hunter than I will ever be. So back to the leopard hunt. It's the end of your first safari, and they come to you and say, you've really been stacking up the plains game. We'll... Are you interested in a good deal on a leopard? Well, the the leopard in this particular case, they were hunting leopard with dogs, with hounds, which uh, is and I think that awesome. they have since then uh, they don't do that in Namibia anymore. It's strictly bait, but uh, but I think they're still doing that in Zimbabwe and perhaps perhaps another country or two. But anyway, what percentage of, uh, would you guess? Uh, the lep I'll tell you what my guess is that leopard hunts in Africa are done with hounds today versus the traditional bait and Oh, blind. I think I think most all of them are, t are I mean. Oh, I know most all of them with, are bait With the blind, exception yeah. of Zimbabwe, I think that most everywhere they're hunting them with bait, you know. But but hunting them with hounds was was quite an experience. And so there was a houndsman on the property because he had been there for another hunter and I think the outfitter was looking for a way for him to get some revenue. Um, and as he put it to me, he says, you know, we've been putting out baits. And what they do in that case, they don't put out baits so you can shoot them from a blind. They put out baits fairly low so the leopard could reach them from the ground. But when he does so, they put them in places where his track will be evident. Mm -hmm. And when the track is evident, they can ascertain as to is this a, a an adult leopard is this a male or a female leopard and of course they only want to pursue a male leopard and so they would tack a, a bait perhaps six or eight feet off the ground and uh, the leopards would catch the scent and and check out the bait and then once they have a leopard frequenting a bait then uh, they've got a, a track you know um, scent line that the hounds can can follow but i was approached and i explained to them that i worked for a living and i wasn't in that genre that could afford to do such <laughs> things and he, no 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 no. we got an opportunity for you and 
he was he was uh, very very generous and made it to where you know this is not going to cost you an arm and a leg and and, and the first thing was that uh, okay if you'll just agree if you'll sign a contract first I had to sign this contract that included if you shoot a hound it just costs you two thousand dollars or if a leopard killed a hound were you responsible for those dogs no too? no I just if you no, shot one just if i if i were to wound a hound and why would that have been a possibility well i mean it was just you know because it's a, a big brawl it's brawl it really is um so anyway but it, you know the initial thing was is we'll continue to put out baits for three days and monitor those baits while you, you know the three days you have left if you'll sign this contract to these conditions and give me a thousand dollars little down payment and for well just you know as just keep me if, going if here. that's if that's as far as it goes and i said you know gee whiz i can say i was a leopard hunter for three days you know what a feather in my cap you know <laughs> I mean, this is an old farm boy coming out here to africa i couldn't believe i was there in the first place it was just a fantasy and uh it's luck ha and you know and then he says and if you and the houndsman at some point uh, agree to that there's a cat that you want to chase and you agree to put the hounds on the ground it's going to cost you i don't remember now a couple of thousand more or something like that i can't really remember um and then if you actually shoot a leopard there'll be you know several thousand dollars Trophy more thing. but still it was a tiny fraction so of what all a leopard in, you're, you're all in like under 10 grand on this leopard. oh i mean i think the leopard cost me eventually Fifty-five hundred dollars, something okay. like. That. I mean, it's, it's a stupid. Ten, a ten, maybe twenty, maybe twenty percent of what a base leopard hunt would cost. You know, if that's what you went after today. Oh, I know, like big special permit leopards today are go for, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. Oh, I don't. That sounds high, but I think it. You know, probably you're not going to find one for under twenty-five or thirty. No way. That's kind of the bottom right now. But still, it's. I mean. Compared to, you know, you could hunt buffalo for, oh, I could find you a buff hunt now for probably 10,000, 10 or 12,000. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the best buff hunt, but, you know, so leopards are certainly more expensive a step than up, that. Yeah. But they're not expensive compared to hunting an elephant in most places. Is or, that right? Or, uh, you know, things like, yeah, elephant, you know, the better elephant, Probably your best ones are probably coming from Botswana or, you know, or the Caprivi Strip, you know, in northern uh, Namibia or... Uh, what a big bull elephant hunt costs you. Oh, some of those can run you well over six figures. Really? Yeah. Whoa. You could get into it there. But now those, you know, but there's... I've got a friend that just came back this summer and he actually shot one now it wasn't an exportable elephant that's another matter too but because of where it came from because well because of the permit that it was shot on i see it was like uh, a depredation tag of, or something yeah, it was like yeah, it has exactly. to stay here be destroyed here yeah but I, I don't think he had more than perhaps 20 tied up in that elephant and it was and it turned out that it was a very very good elephant but um that was, that's on the low in, end. You're getting in on the leopard game at yeah. a, a steal. Well, the leopard was just, you know, that was a gift. And actually, of course, he'd made a lot of money on me already. But And <laughs> what are your odds in three days? Well, the second morning, we're, you know, headed out in the truck, and it's, you know, 25 or 30 degrees, you know, because it's the middle of May, 
or late May and, uh, you know, getting into their fall. And, uh, you know, I'm bundled up pretty good riding on an open truck, and we get a radio call, and the houndsman says, get your tails over here. I just ran a leopard off a of bait, and it looks good. He, he jumped it. He jumped it. He heard it. And, uh, oh boy, you know, apparently he and the leopard got to the bait about the same time because uh, he was just going and, you know, he had baits. And, and this is and right, at, right at dawn? Right uh, at no, it's prior to dawn. It's in, in the dark. In and the dark. that was one thing. One of the rules was that you could not put a dog on the ground until sunup. That's the law in Montana yeah. for mountain lion yeah. and bobcat. You know, and, and obviously they, 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 Wherever we are, and we, of course, as sportsmen, want to uh, support this, but, you know, we want to make it fair chase. Of course. And uh, so that was one of the one of the rules we had to adhere to. So you, you had, did you make it to the bait, and you're all waiting around in the dark, and you're like, he's here, we just jumped him off, we're going to start right at first light? Exactly, exactly. Sounds that. like a good so, morning. Well, I mean, lion, it was a matter of, of course, I had to, uh, you know, I had to give the green light to the houndsman. To, to write the check. Because, you know, at that point in time, I just spent more money. You know, and I, th- I think it may be another 2500 I don't really remember now. But <laughs> it, it, was, it was modest money anyway compared to what a leopard should cost. Right. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, and I, you know, here I am. Like I said, you know, just I felt like, uh, you know, just uh, real uh, – uh, naive farm boy if you will because i'd never even shot a bobcat in my life and here's this gentleman saying we're going to go kill a leopard and uh is he pretty confident at this point oh he was you know very experienced uh this gentleman actually had traveled from durban south africa and uh i think he had been in on hundreds of of leopard hunts wow so uh we uh, you know, we had a little conference there, and I said, do you think it's a male? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he speaks <laughs> this, uh, deep guttural Afrikaans, you know, um, uh, was his uh, normal speech. And um, big burly man. I mean, just an absolute mountain man. Well, like I said, it was probably freezing or perhaps a bit lower. And he's in shorts and, and a short sleeve shirt. I mean, you know, just, and just <laughs> a mountain of a man, too, you know, probably six six and uh, uh, all muscle but um, anyway we uh, you know he he assured me that this was a cat we wanted to chase and I said okay I believe I couldn't believe it you know it was just you know fantasy if you will and and as it was uh, just a few hours later after fighting a lot of thorn and and climbing around on that mountainside uh, we actually uh, heard the tone of the hounds change, and you could tell that they were. Oh yeah. That they were, had bayed that cat. So back up to to first light. You'd agree we're going to do this. First light comes, and he puts dogs out. Yeah. What kind of hounds were they? They were. Uh, they were walkers. Uh, I think, with one exception, it seemed like there was a. I want to say an Airedale, perhaps. Oh, interesting. You know. Um, most, how, I think all, they were all walkers how many except dogs? for that one. And there were probably, oh gosh, in my memory now, probably seven or eight dogs altogether. Okay, quite a few. Quite a few. So if you're not familiar, uh, an animal like a mountain lion, which most people listening would be probably 
that that you would have the most likeliness to have uh, familiarity with here in North America, obviously, they tree. So you can catch a mountain lion with one one hound dog because mm-hmm. it's not dangerous for the dog. The 99% of the time, the cat goes up a tree and sits there while the dog barks at it. Now, other animals that are hunted by with hounds don't behave that way, and those include bear and leopard. And le- they will both bay up, which means not climb up into an elevated position. They'll stay at ground level with the hound dogs, and they're – They'll fight. They're prone to fight, um, which is night and day difference between mountain lion hunting and leopard hunting. Is the leopard is v- likely going to fight, and the mountain lion is likely going to tree. Now, the leopard is is very similar in size to a mountain lion. So that's right. You know, a mountain lion that was two hundred pounds live weight would be a very exceptional mountain lion. Oh, goodness. And and a, a, a leopard that was 200 pounds would be very exceptional. I mean, they, they both occur, but it's like 300-pound men. They're not that common either. That's right. And, but the behavior is so different. Very different. Ma- uh, leopards have no sense of humor whatsoever. Why uh, do you think they're so different? Because they coexist with so many other apex predators over there that they have to be a little more ornery? You know, I really don't have a theory on that. But, but yeah, there's they're a They're so similar. There, and, and, you know, a mountain lion is relatively shy in that, okay, let's say they want to run up a tree. They, you know, they're, 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 they just don't want to tangle with just even one dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and if they... You know, they're not likely to even try to fight that dog or a leopard, you know, if he can get his paw on that dog, he's, you know. Just like a black bear. They will be, they're very aggressive. Yeah. And as I was told, you have to shoot the leopard the moment you have an opportunity to shoot the leopard because if he sees us, he will forget about the hounds. He's coming for us. Oh, geez. Uh, so. What kind of gun do you have? I, in that particular case, because of the bullets that I had loaded for my cartridges, I had two rifles that uh, I brought on that particular hunt. One of them was a, a 300 Win Mac, and I'd loaded 180 grain Barnes, uh, you know, solid copper, homogenous bullets, which are quite hard. And the other rifle was a 338, and I'd loaded, uh, I think on that particular hunt, 225-grain Swift A-frames. Now, both bullets are, you know, great penetrators. I mean, you know, they'll, they're, they're relatively tough bullets, but that was the only options I had. And so I chose the 338, not because you need that much power. You could kill a leopard easily with a 243. Yeah. I mean, they're not even harder to kill than a little, you know, southern whitetail or something. You know. But That's right. They they give up the ghost pretty quick. Pretty easy. They're they're light mountain lion do thing, too. You know, but uh, but it doesn't take a lot of killing. But those were the two firearms that I had available on that particular hunt. So I chose the A frame because it was relatively softer than the uh, Barnes bullet that I had for the 300. And you're looking for some expansion? Is that Well, what looking for some expansion, exactly, you know, looking. And, and, and frankly, either one would have worked fine, but, uh, but I'd have been better served if I'd had, you know, if I could have made a choice at that moment with a, with a perhaps a cup and core bullet and 
something like a 270 or yeah. or whatever uh or just or, or uh, you know inside a 30 alt 6 or something like that you know just a, a much softer bullet a nozzler partition of course would have been an excellent excellent choice uh uh no matter what the cartridge yeah. but uh but you know just something that would expand faster but again i just didn't have the options uh, and i you know definitely wanted to use my firearm so you tracked the how far did the leopard travel from the bait oh miles it I mean, did several miles oh yeah miles, wow. miles and and there was one one particular occasion when we're out and when i say we there were at least two trackers and the houndsman and my professional hunter uh at least that many of us i don't really remember now but there were four or five of us all together and um uh, there were at least a couple of more guns. I know that the, the tracker had a thirty out six, and I was not the tracker, but the houndsman, and um, and at least one of the trackers had a, a I think a twelve gauge. You guys are armed. Well, yeah, you know, it and and a PH I'm sure was carrying something. <laughs> Frankly, I don't remember now, but but uh, there was one occasion. You know, you could hear these dogs. Uh, you know, and they would be, they were, at one time they're running, it was quite evident they were running up a, a pretty steep mountainside, and this mountain was heavily brushed and with weight a bit, if you will. You know, everything had thorns on it. Mm. And so, um, you know, it was difficult to go through this because, you know, the the brush would just pull at your clothing and, you know, and pull your hat off repeatedly, et cetera. But, um we could tell they were running up the mountain and all of a sudden we could tell by the sound that they're coming down the mountain and they're coming directly at us Jeez! and uh, does this houndsman have a gps on his dogs or is yes, he going I by telemetry I, or just sound i think he had telemetry yeah. like a wand and he's listening for yeah, a beep I, I, you know it would have been the reason I asked. It would have been early for having like a handheld GPS yeah, and the Garmin systems we I'm use thinking today. That too, yeah. He probably had telemetry, which is just old school, waving the yeah. wand around trying to triangulate dogs' location yeah. off of a beep. Yeah, I just honestly don't remember that. But uh, and of course, my t- <laughs> us focused on other details too, <laughs> like like when they were running up that mountain. I'm thinking, how is this fat boy going to run up that mountain? I mean, I'm not real sure I can handle this, but you know, I mean, I'm just I have I was full of south south self doubt, but uh, they turned around. uh, You know, next thing you know, we're they're running down the mountain, and at one point, we look up the slope and there's a dog running towards us, perhaps 125, 150 yards up slope. And we know there's if a if leopard. He's there, there's he's a leopard in front of in that front dog. Of him, yeah. You know, we don't see the leopard, but we know he's that close. And, <laughs> yeah. and believe me, there was everybody's attention was was uh, focused on on that possibility of that leopard running over us. Um, and then it was quite evident that uh, the, the it was like a 90 degree turn, and it ran along the flank of the mountain for quite some distance, and then. And then we had, uh, you know, the tone. You know, you could t- just tell by the tone of the of the hounds that that they, had they weren't up. chasing. They had him bayed. They go into a ch- did they go to a chop? Usually, when they're on, they're trailing, they'll be bawling like how like really opening up long 
long vocalizations. And then when they bay up or tree, often hounds will go to a chop, yeah. like a bark. Yeah, it's quite a it's quite a cacophony uh, of the, uh, uh, the the leopard itself was quite vocal. Really. And uh, you know the dogs are they're creating a hell of a den. That's another difference between the leopard and the mountain lion. Yeah, the leopard's well, a roaring cat. Well, the, the leopard is deep guttural roars i mean mountain lions don't do that Uh, i mean it was it was uh definitely raised the hair on your back of your neck i mean it was scary um but anyway they had him bayed and we got to a point and there's a rock on the side of the mountain that to me was perhaps the size of a school bus and and the houndsman tells me he said i think they're just on the other side of that rock and he and i climbed up together above that rock and we looked down and at only maybe 12 or 15 yards was this incredible sight of uh of the 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 leopard is backed against the rock and the dogs are in a semi-circle and there they would lunge forward and the, the leopard would reach out and try to hook one and they would recoil back and back and forth and they're just making a terrible racket and everything of course it's in my mind first off you gotta have you know do not shoot a dog you know you don't want yeah. to shoot a dog um, it's so chaotic it's so loud it's extremely chaotic and i'm sure the houndsman's yelling at you you know well i don't remember him yelling at me but but uh it was we usually are <laughs> it's very noisy it's very noisy because the dogs are making a tremendous amount of noise and the leopard is is uh growling and everything and uh, and then I have this picture in my mind, and it, it literally, there was at one point, the leopard just reached out, stretched out as far as he could, and with his right paw, if I remember correctly, tried to tried to hook a dog, and the whole bunch of them just kind of synchronously recoiled back. Scattered. And that three thirty eight went off, and you know. Oh, that's when you shot. That's when I shot him, and he just, of course, he rolled up. I mean, uh, when he when he went for a dog, it opened up a huge yeah uh, shooting lane for you. Exactly. So I finally had a clear spot, and and I was I was waiting on that, and uh, fifteen yards or so. Oh, at the most, oh, 12, geez. 15 yards, very very close, you know. Boom. Uh, and of course, you know, you put it on his shoulder and pull the trigger, and it just rolls up. Yeah. But they're again very, very easy to kill. Uh, but at the same time that I did that, the houndsman immediately ran down that hill, grabs his dogs, uh, and and as he runs by the the leopard, which is laying on its side, he pulled the trigger on that thirty out six, not with the rifle on his shoulder, but just by his side. <laughs> but he was just trying to get another round into him, you know, just. I guess insurance, if you will. That's that's interesting. So he he went and doubled down on it. Exactly. Well, if all your dogs are unleashed, and you have a die, I understand that he he had it double dead there, but it it takes one bite, right? Oh yeah. It takes one one bite for the thing to crush the dog's skull, and so he was just he wasn't messing around. No. And those dogs, it was interesting because they calmed down immediately, but uh, they were beat up. From the country or from the lion? From or both. From the leopard, I'm sure sorry. from both. I'm sure from both. 
but uh, but he had definitely scratched up dogs. I mean, there were blood everywhere, and their faces are all messed up and everything, you know. Yeah, that's you know, rugged. They were, they were, it's just it's just rough. It, I can't imagine a dog doing that. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, they of course we went through that ceremony where you know we looked at him and and uh, I was practically in tears because I was so overwhelmed with the experience. Couldn't believe that that all came together. Exactly. And, and of course, you know, the, the traditional thing of put the leopard, put the cat on your shoulders and, and, uh, walk <laughs> down to the truck with it. And, and, uh, and then, you know, the, uh, they, they were th- throughout that whole safari, that whole hunt, they were very, very conscious of getting good photographs for the hunter yeah that's a that's an important part of the job i try to take good photos too and i'm guiding an outfit yeah absolutely they they did that repeatedly to the tune if you shoot a spring buck or a, a, a zebra as you learn to pronounce it yeah you know there's zebras and giraffes you start <laughs> speaking with a british accent for sure just a few days into it but uh uh, and I, I don't know why it would be a British accent there because, you know, Namibia was well, settled by Brit- Germans. Oh, but, is that right? Yeah. But yeah. there's a long history of British rule oh, yes. in Africa yeah, and sure. the original sure. safaris like yeah. of milita- British military like hunting in Africa. Well, you know, the, I'm, I referred to uh, them speaking Afrikaans frequently when they were speaking to each other. Yeah. Not necessarily speaking to me. They would speak to me in English. But uh, when they spoke Afrikaans, you know, and I, I listened to that, and I recognized that many of the words were, it was, it's really a combination between English and German and Dutch. It's and slang. All these it's other all cultures slang, yeah. that had been involved in settling that part of the world. So Namibia was actually a German colony. Interesting. Until First World War, when they lost it, and... Uh, and, of course, you know, Germans uh, uh, were, you know, also settled, as we mentioned earlier, uh, what was then Tanganyika, uh, you know. And, and, of course, the Portuguese were in Mozambique. And, you know, there was all kinds mm. of colonial uh, activity across right. the continent for, for many, many years. But, uh, and of course, the, the French in, uh, in West Africa, et cetera. But... Um, yeah. That, uh, so, you about the good photos that you're well, saying they, they did get? They, we literally loaded up the leopard and we drove back towards the lodge but the lodge itself was oh gosh perhaps 30 miles away and we got to into a canyon uh which is just you know gorgeous beautiful uh, uh mountainous country and they literally picked that leopard up uh i'm sure you know some of the trackers and they picked it up and they carried it 125 yards up this canyon wall to where we had some beautiful outcropping and whatever wow. just to get just to get those photographs good on them and then yes very much so and then and then uh, as we got to the lodge everybody there and they had quite a staff was there and they they had a table set out, and they had champagne glasses, and they had champagne. I will say this. I've, I'm familiar with the tr- the tradition you're referring to right now. Mm-hmm. 
and I've always it's always made me feel kind of weird. I've never been there and done that, but to have like the whole staff, and I guess if it's done out of like they those people those locals, if they're have come from a long history of like you killed a man eater or you killed like something that was detrimental to my grand, you know, it's just like they really celebrate the killing of a large predator. I think that's I think that's often the case, and and I, and you mix it with good marketing. Yeah, it's you know, just I just see them like getting raised up in a chair, like they're at a, some kind of a <laughs> wedding or something. And I'm like, man, I don't. If I came back to the lodge, I'd give some high fives and shake yeah. some hands, but I don't want to be lifted in a chair and like no. have champagne. Well, I, on. I didn't. I didn't get. I didn't lift. win the NBA championship. Yeah, it, I wasn't lifted in a chair, but we definitely had champagne and and. Uh, and and a lot of congratulatory. Uh, I guess I wouldn't words. say no. <laughs> no, it was. I mean, it's just a terrific experience. It really is. I mean, that's that's a major thing. And of course, the outfitters. Well, in that case, he didn't make that kind of money, but uh, but still made a reasonable profit on that. So I'm looking at that leopard right now. It's climbing on a branch here in the trophy room, and it's it's a big cat. Did you ever weigh him? Yes, he weighed uh, 62 kilos, which would be, what, 140 pounds perhaps, uh, live weight. And as I was told several times, he had his stomach was completely empty. He had not had a chance to eat. So mm-hmm. he, was, he was a hungry cat when he discovered that bait, but he didn't get an opportunity to eat that morning. He got quite a workout so, in, too. But... Uh, I think uh, being about roughly 140 pounds live weight, uh, probably very average in uh, size, very typical in size. For uh, an adult male. For an adult male. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, of course, female would typically be somewhat less. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another thing, too. Is, and one thing to be said, of course, in our case, they were judging by the size of the track. Yep. In fact, the, the, the houndsman told me, he said, uh, he's an old 70-kilo cat. You know, when I was asking him about, is this a male cat? Is this one we want to chase? And so he was excited. W- with, his, with his practiced eye, he thought he was a little bit heavier cat. But, again, uh, he was empty. Yeah. And as uh, we typically are the day before Thanksgiving, we're emptier than we are the next day. Yeah, no doubt. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's a beautiful cat. If I that's at the if I do make it to Africa one day, I certainly would like to spend my time, attention, and money on big cats. Yeah. I think hunting a leopard is my. That's the top of my my hunt wish list right now is polar bear and leopard. Well, and I if think I can do it with dogs like you did it, all the better. Yeah, the the predators I think are have always been exciting to me. I mean, that's just. Because they're hunters themselves. And, oh, yeah. And to, to, uh, to be able to... You can learn a lot. Yeah, you you know, it, it you had to really work at them perhaps harder than you might on an unglet or something, you know. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, I think, that uh, they've got the idea that going to Africa is a terribly, terribly expensive ordeal. And it can be but it can be quite economical and it's everything in between. So it, it all comes down to what is it you're going to take, uh, what animals, because some animals are quite uh, uh, expensive and some animals are quite economical. You know, and some of the 
just some a land of, of opportunity. Well, and some of the more familiar animals. I mean, you know, and they don't necessarily have to be all that small. You know, a wildebeest, uh, like a blue wildebeest, could easily be five, 550 pounds and uh, perhaps 400 pounds for a black wildebeest and uh, a, a zebra, if you will. Zebra. Uh, um, you know, according to the variety uh but you're talking about anywhere from maybe 700 to 900 pounds and that sort of thing. And so they're pretty good-sized animals. But those are, those are kind of um, fairly economical animals to take. And then animals like uh, more common animals, and, that, you know, and the commonality is the reason that they're, they're not as expensive. But the animals like uh, an impala, which you know, kind of would parallel our uh, whitetail, or especially a southern whitetail, um, you know, and springbok, which are s very similar, per, a bit smaller than a pronghorn on average. Um, those animals get to be, you know, they're they could be in that four or five hundred dollar bracket. You know, all I, things considered, that's pretty dang all things considered, affordable. You know, yeah, but you know, again, it comes down to where you're hunting and uh, what you're hunting. Um, some animals, you know, I mentioned earlier about bongo, you know, uh, you jungle e expedition, you, e you could easily spend 75, 80,000 shooting wow. bongo, wow. um, you know, or mountain Elon, um, Lord Derby's. Yeah. The Lord Derby's, you know, that you could spend some serious money on them or what's over your or, or right shoulder right that's, there. That's, that's an Inyala, but that's a, the, an Inyala's are. Uh, more in a uh, perhaps you know of course it's going to vary according to where you take it and uh, with whom you take it you know and such but and then y'all is probably about a $2,500 trophy fee something still like in, that still on, in the affordable average. category still you know relatively yeah so for the and price of like your average fully outfitted western elk hunt you're saying you can go. Well, I mean, you know, you think about an elk hunt, you're going to spend $7,500. Minimum. Or, or more. Yeah. You know, you could easily spend 15 or 20 Yeah. You know. Uh, so a couple ranches. And to uh, think about you got to think here. about that at elk hunt, too. If you if you spend 7500 you're probably hunting uh, not out of a ranch, but probably on national forest land or whatever, which means you're going to be in a tent, and you're going to be eating freeze-dried, and you're probably gonna not gonna get a shower every day, and you're probably gonna get cold. Yeah, your dollar goes. I mean, if, I want to say your dollar goes a lot further on an African safari. And you may or may not shoot that elk. Yeah. And if you do shoot that elk, the odds are probably as low as maybe one in ten that you're gonna shoot a big six point. Right. You know. Uh, so. I've heard people have told me, oh, gee, Larry, if I could just, I really want a good kudu. I really hope I can shoot a kudu. And I'm thinking, well, you know, it's not, you don't, you need to understand, it's not a matter of whether you'll see a kudu or even a good kudu. It's a matter of holding yourself back so you don't shoot three of them. <laughs> you know, because it's kind of like the land of excess. It's the, like the opportunity will be there. Now, that's not true of every species, right? But, but, but yeah, uh, you go to the typical place, and and you know, uh, 
whether we're talking about you know Eastern Cape South Africa or Limpopo South Africa which would be the opposite end of South Africa northern portion northern province uh, or Namibia or places like that you know you're you're going to have lots of opportunities and there's some wonderful things you know I mean you know, warthogs are modestly priced. Uh, the dikers and things of that nature. Well, according to the, it's according to what variety of diker, but the most common would be a little gray diker. And yeah, that might be three hundred, three fifty, or something like that. You the know, the smallest antelope in the world, isn't it? There's oh, several uh, variety of. Well, them. there's a number of varieties of dikers, and and you know, and but they're the size of a house but, cat. Well, no, I mean some of them are. Some of them might be, you know, some of the dikers might. I don't say that as a dig. I say that it's like it's fascinating. Well, they're just they're, they're so all cool. over the place. So you know, like a harnessed, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, a, a yellow diker out of the out of the western West Africa might be, you know, sixty, seventy, eighty pounds or something. Oh, that's like, pretty big. You know, yeah. I mean, but then again, I think the smaller, some of the, the little dick dicks, some of those small antelope are just tiny little things that might weigh five or eight pounds. You know. So how many times have you been to Africa now? I've been three times. Three times? And what, uh, outside of the Plains game and that leopard, what are some of the other uh, animals? I think of a really pretty uh, red lechwe downstairs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A water buck around the corner. I have a common water buck, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what else have you hunted? Well, in let's look in this room. You know, there's a blue wildebeest right here on, above the fireplace and and uh, their water buck over there, and uh, and y'all are behind me, and zebra behind uh, you. Yeah, actually, my my young bride shot that uh, zebra. Uh, that's a that's a plains zebra or Birchell zebra, which is the most common in Southern Africa. I shot a Hartman zebra in Namibia. Those ones with two stripes. Like the, the double Hart, stripes. The Hartmans, no, the the plain zebra, the Birchells will have a shadow stripe. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Hartmans is a very unique animal. They're actually larger, significantly larger, uh, on average than a Birchells, uh, and they're uh, they're strictly black and white. Have a very unique uh, striping pattern. Their bellies are completely white. Oh so, wow! So the stripes uh, end before they hit the belly, and they're their muzzles tend to be that little golden hue to them, and they are they accepted and, as and, like the prettier zebra. Well, no, I think they're all pretty, but but uh, but there's on the continent. Oh gosh, there's probably half a dozen varieties. I mean, there's oh, you know gosh. a number of different zebras, if you will. But again, you know, it comes down to okay, the the vast majority of safaris are. Right now, I mean, you know, they're they're hunting many places around the continent. Of course, there are closed countries, and there's countries that have been closed that are now open, and countries that are now open that may be closed at Jeez. some point. You know, Kenya's been closed since the late 70s, um, where it all started, really. Wow. But... Uh, uh, and it's just politics of yeah, a, a third-world po- continent. It's politics. It's, you know, they don't hunt mountain lions in, in uh, California. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, like it's not too far far off from our own narrative. Absolutely here. no reason, you know, or, or don't hunt grizzly bears in British Columbia, which sure. is absurd. Absurd, you know? you know. But I mean, there's no no scientific reason for it. It's strictly political. Um, you know what always interests me or blows me away about Africa is the amount of diversity, the amount of different species uh, of flora and fauna alike. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you think of North American 29, and it's like, that's a really diverse, long list of big game animals, and it is. And then you scooch over to Africa, and you're like, man, you guys have over 70 species of antelope yes. on this continent. Yes. And that's just one category. Like, it, the uh, the diversity and volume of wild game is what is probably most appealing to me about Africa. Yeah. I think I would enjoy uh, just going to, like, a national park, Kruger National Park, and just seeing everything as much as I probably would going on a hunt. Um just that kind of diversity. Where else can you drive around in a day or a week and see a hundred different species of mm-hmm. mammal? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's it is. You know, and that brings up a subject too that I, you know, uh, I'm fortunate uh, that my young bride uh, also hunts. To be clear, you're not married to some 35 year old girl. <laughs> well, <laughs> but you do always refer to her as young bride for the audience well, listening. I'll clarify. She's been my child bride for over 55 years now. Oh, that's but, but uh, yeah, uh, but um, yeah, uh, she's still my young bride, uh, just like my 50 year old son's my little boy. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm fortunate that she does hunt, and, and I don't think she's ever been quite as fanatic as I am about it, but I think she thinks about other things. and We don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm, it, it's not a day that, you know, on the calendar that I'm not thinking about hunting. In fact, I was trying to reach a biologist in Wyoming yesterday. Here we are just closing up our hunting season. I'm thinking about next season. Talking pronghorn? Well, in this case, white-tailed deer, but it's a long story. But anyway, uh, you know, it's every day I'm thinking hunting and every day I'm thinking about rifles. And I, you know, uh, you know I don't have a – I, I need another gun. You know, <laughs> and it'll always – There's not a gun out there that you don't need, The right? day that they bury me, I'll be needing another gun, you know. Uh, I just love rifles. I just infatuated with rifles. But, uh, but the reason I bring up my bride is that you know she also enjoyed hunting, and she, she on you know on, uh, our trips she's taken you know pretty good number of animals herself. But there are sometimes you know family members, whether it's a spouse or children or whatever else, that also could very very much enjoy the hunt without ever holding a firearm uh, just because there's so much to be seen and so much of it is revolves around just seeing new country yeah. uh, seeing different cultures uh, you know people are wonderful uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed you know everybody I've, I've, I've met in, in Africa just very you know just wonderful people you know, and of all walks of life, but, you know, just wonderful, wonderful experience. That, that whole, uh, you know, the, the word safari, of course, was meant trip, you know. That was, that was uh, so you're, you're going on a trip of new experiences. Yeah, it's a Swahili word, I think. Yes, I think so. I think so. Yeah, it, it, it kind of, it combines everything from global travel to, you know, if whether you're into food or culture or travel or it really yeah. hunting photography like it it's a little bit for everybody you know you mentioned food i remember the very first meal that i ate in hunting camp in namibia and hunting camp i use that word loosely because it's it a was nice one very comfortable <laughs> uh 
and, and hunting camp is, is generally very comfortable, and that varies a bit around the continent according to what you're hunting and where and everything, but the vast majority of the places you go, you're going to be very comfortable, and you're going to have hot meals, and you're going to have a warm bed, and somebody's going to do your laundry every day is there anybody selling like backpack hunts in africa yes they are uh, i yes. knew a guy that was doing it but unfortunately he passed away oh john, I, I knew of a fellow that uh a fellow named john wambach that's who i'm like referring that. to i believe he passed away yes yeah he, he actually died of covid that's sad yeah um yeah. that's oh. how I'd, I'd like to go do like a backpack uh kudu hunt and like treat it like an elk hunt mm-hmm and, and that, that was exactly what John was doing, and he was known for that. And I know there's there are other people that are doing that, uh, doing that sort of thing. I don't think there's a huge market for it, because most of us Americans, at least, are are pretty We're going lazy. Home, yeah. We're pretty lazy, but yeah. but uh, but I think it would be a wonderful experience if if I were young enough. I, you know, I was telling the wife recently that in my fantasies was you know i wish i desperately wish that it, when i was a young person i could have been able to get up and trace around these mountains like you kids do and, yeah you know and of course that's 30 years behind me but um you know the mountain hunting was would be so exciting to me and i think it at climbing around some of those mountains in namibia would be grand or, or not just namibia but you know some of those places huh. all places in africa but uh, that's that's how I'd like to I'd like to do a real rugged a real wild yeah outing yeah and try to trace the some of the historic you know uh, you know and and, and that that experience changes so much uh over the continent because it just you know you can do pretty much what you want to it's like we were talking about before I remember our, my very first trip when we went to Namibia in 2005 uh my professional hunter was complaining because the uh, we were actually his second client of his after he got his license as a professional hunter. So when you say the word professional hunters, would you say that's comparable to a North American outfitter? No. Or is it more no. than that? A professional hunter wherever in Africa has to be really professional and not that outfitters aren't necessarily but they don't really there there's no you know it's you can kind of uh hang out your shingle and say i'm an outfitter and you know <laughs> here in montana you you know you've got you got to be licensed and whatever but you know it's it's pretty informal around the nation whereas in africa you have to be certified by the government and you have to be proficient in not only being a good hunting guide, but in, you know, you're responsible for that client. And in mean, a foreign land. In a foreign land. And so you have to know, a, you need to be a mechanic. Yeah. You need to be wow. uh, proficient in first aid. You need to know all kinds of natural history and everything, you know. So you need to be able to tell that client, yeah, it's so-and-so bush or tree or whatever. Mm -hmm. and. And, uh, you know, you just have to have a tremendous amount of knowledge. So to get a license to uh, be a professional hunter, um, you really do have to be a professional. You know, you really... It takes it's interesting. I always just kind of had it in my mind that a PH was Africa's term for uh, 
a guider and a guider maybe an outfitter yeah just a bit a bit beyond that yeah yeah a bit beyond that you know they well, i mean they just have to be pretty pretty well trained so you don't just you know decide one day that you're going to be a yeah professional hunter so to, to wrap it up here uh explain to me the handling of wild game meat in africa and what that looks like because if you go over on a safari and in a week you shoot 10 plains game animals you're certainly not take i don't think anyone's bringing meat home from africa you no. probably legally are not allowed usda is not going to let that happen anyway and 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 you know it would be cost prohibitive frankly you know um game meat and and you know these game animals in most of africa are are property of the of the landowner and uh, so that is that right is it uh, i guess that yeah, makes it's, sense it's i just completely don't think different about this than stuff north american model. this is like england yes very much so yeah like I'm, kingsland <laughs> yeah no it's it's very different than the north american model but they uh you know they have a lot of incentives to do it right to be good stewards of that uh, that uh resource because you know they, they have a lot of financial uh, uh, investment investment in it, in it. the um Game meat, many times, it's according to where you are, what country you're in, where they are relative to the cities and whatever, but very often that game meat is harvested and uh, professionally uh, handled uh, so that uh, it can be brought into retail sales, so you'll find it in grocery stores and such. Really? Yeah. Um, and you know, but at the same time, if you're in some remote place in uh, Botswana or Tanzania and you shot an elephant, then you kind of get back to the old school of uh, all hands all, on deck. All hands on deck, and suddenly, you know, you're a very popular guy, and there's there's 75 or 100 uh, locals that are ready to uh, take over, and um, Butcher the you thing. know butcher that animal out and everything and and you know and and it, and it's, it's interesting I, in my head I I thought it was kind of always like that in Africa I was like well like it I knew it didn't nothing went to waste but I, in my head I was like oh yeah all wild game meat in Africa is immediately donated to the local village and it sometimes is uh, but you're saying that there's actually like a market value oh, yeah, to very it much as well. so no I they, just, they I never have, thought about that no they'll they'll have very uh, big operators will have very very sophisticated uh, meat processes yes um I and believe it and they you know they utilize that in the local market um i i i shot an elan uh, a cape elan in uh, on the eastern cape of south africa in 2008 and um is it like a seven, eight hundred pound antelope? No, much bigger. Oh, really? Much bigger. And Elan is the world's largest antelope, and of course, you know, a large derby, uh, you know, could well be two thousand pounds. In fact, no a, kidding. You know, a mature Livingston or Cape even could be two thousand. But that's you know the top end. But an Elan in general is much larger than an Alaska Yukon moose. Wow. Uh, they are massive, massive animals. Um, and wonderful meat, absolutely one of the best eating meats mm. that uh, you'll. So, what did they do with have. that eland? Well, that in in this particular case, I'm sure that a large portion of that eland went to market because it was so and good. Now, I did get to eat uh, the tenderloin, 
because I knew that Elon was really, really good. I'd always read about that, and so it was indeed. So I did eat two meals uh, of tenderloin, um, but uh, as you should have, I imagine most of it went to the market. But what I was going to mention to you is, after I'd shot the Elon, uh, the next afternoon we were headed out into the field, and my PA says, "Do you mind?" If this gentleman rides in the truck and I take him back to his residence, um, you know, his little cabin or whatever you would call it, you know, um, you know, he, he just needs a ride back. And I said, no, hop in. And he jumps in and he's got a femur from that Elon. Oh, wow. And um, Probably looked like a dinosaur bone. Oh, yes. I mean, they're huge. But uh, the, it had absolutely no red on it. It was just completely clean. There was no meat on it whatsoever. And I said, what's he going to do with that? And the pH says, well, he's going to eat the marrow yeah. out of that bone. And, you know, and, of course, great resource. But they waste absolutely no meat. If you kill an elephant, they're going to eat everything but the stomach contents. They will eat the intestines. They will eat everything of that elephant. What's uh, what's the jerky called that they make? Uh, uh, they refer to it as biltong. Biltong, yeah, and it's a, a traditional way that uh, Africa's obviously really hot, and if you have a lot of meat that's about to spoil, turns out if you cut it into jerky-thin strips and hang it out in the sun, yeah, well, very often that's the only thing they have available to them, so they will strip it out and they will hang it, you know. No salt needed, nothing. Well, yeah, you shoot an elephant, you'll have two acres covered with, with uh, th- all the thorn bushes going to be covered with meat. How do they keep the birds off of this? Well, I don't know that they do, but. <laughs> I mean, that just seems like it would it's be chaotic. a matter of percentage. But uh, but yeah. you get to eat a certain amount in camp, and that's, that's one of the wonderful things. I think the very first meal that I had, I started to mention this earlier about the very first meal that we had in namibia was uh zebra mm, how was that and, and it's excellent what would you compare it to and, uh, just venison like uh, deer elk well it, it's pretty dense it's fairly dense and whatever but it's good eating and in fact i've never had anything that wasn't and i've eaten all sorts of things i mean we've eaten ostrich and lechway <laughs> and impala and kudu and and most uh, of it good everything is good i what mean it's something really bad you've had I've, I've never really had anything bad but there's a couple of that elon of course is is has a great reputation for being just absolute it's perhaps like eating a um uh, axis. Axis here, you know <laughs> yeah. something like that that's what i was thinking um i think that one thing that we we shot several gims buck in namibia in that in our first trip and Ginsbuck is one of the four oryxes uh on the continent you know scimitar not very common at all probably not hunted in africa but now hunted in texas because there's lots of them in and texas. new mexico too i think oh sure um well i know there's i know there's Ginsbuck in new mexico maybe that's oh, what i'm thinking of. may not be that's the, the white the scimitar yeah the yeah. scimitar are, the, are pretty white you know, with a russet uh, uh, brisket and whatever. Uh, but, and, of course, you know, there's several different arcs, but the Ginsbuck is the largest of the arcs. And they are, all the arcs family is fantastic eating. Hmm. Just incredibly good eating. Um, you know, but all of this stuff, I mean, wildebeest, you name it. I mean, it's it's all very, very good meat. Yeah, I believe it. So much, much like, uh, and that's part of the adventure too. Much like you know? everything that we 
we hunt and eat. You take care of it. It's it's usually pretty dang good. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking Africa with me. We're gonna have to do this again. Uh, maybe we'll talk rifles next time. Well, yeah, I was I was thinking about that. Um, you know, and that's not that isn't really a difficult subject. Uh, I think people like that you know have have uh, my interest. You know, where farms are imported, whatever might want to make it complicated and everything, but. It's you know you take pretty much what you shoot whitetail with and go over to Africa and shoot about ninety percent of all of it. Oh yeah, I mean, who was the famous author that killed everything with the two seventy? Oh, Jack O'Connor. Jack O'Connor. Africa included. Well, he shot a bunch of stuff in Africa with with two seventy, but he also you know shot thirty out six. Okay. He had, he had a four sixteen Rigby. Oh. You know, and so yeah, I mean he you know, and of course he used things that were appropriate for the given game, but. You know, people, I think, think, oh, I've got to buy a 375. I've got to get myself a 458 or a 470. Or yeah, it's very intimidating for a lot of different reasons. You know, yeah. The, 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 and the also, travel, and, and the you know, and you think about the, the capital outlay, too, because they're trying to finance a hunt, and they think, oh, I've got, to, I've got to go out and buy some special gun and whatever. And for most hunters especially on their first hunts if they're not going after dangerous game and sometimes you know larger cartridges are mandated for for dangerous game for various reasons uh you know like your most people most countries will mandate at least a 375 or 9362 or something like that for cape buffalo as a minimum uh but i guarantee you you could kill Cape Buffalo all day long with the 30-06 right <laughs> bullet, you know, but it's not legal. Um, but, you know, for planes game and such, perhaps with the the Elon you might, you know, that's such a big animal. But, you know, you think about it, an Elon is at best 15 or 20 percent bigger than an Alaska Yukon moose, and plenty of them been killed with 270s and 30-06s sure. and such. and you know, uh, but but an Elon, you know, you might might want a, a big, a little bit bigger gun. But that's that's an exceptional animal. That's a big animal. But you probably already own the rifle you need. For you it. probably already own what you need. You yeah. might, you know, I think that uh, uh, think the gun nut that I am, I would I would want to talk more about the bullets that you use <laughs> in those particular cartridges. You know what? You know what I learned from you years ago. Uh, you corrected me very quickly uh, when I would call cartridges bullets. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I got some bullets in my glove box. And you'd say, no, sir, you have cartridges in your glove box. The bullet is a part of that. Yeah. That, uh, that is something I have never forgotten. And it's, a, you know, it's plain obvious to me now, but growing up, you know, that's a bullet. Where are your bullets? <laughs> well, the bullet's just the tip of the, tip of the equation. <laughs> just a portion of it, yeah. All right. Sure. Well, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas, and we'll do this again soon. It was fun. Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you, Peter.